Hi, I'm Jerry Ratcliffe with Reducing Crime, a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Charis Kruppen is a professor at the University of California, Irvine. Her recent research on California Proposition 47, a law that reduces some non-violent, non-serious crimes to misdemeanors, has attracted quite a bit of attention. Find out more in this podcast at reducingcrime.com and on Twitter at underscore reducingcrime. Charis Kubrin is Professor of Criminology, Law and Society at the University of California, Irvine. Her research focuses on neighborhood correlates of crime with an emphasis on race and violent crime. She also explores the impact of various criminal justice policies on crime rates. She's published extensively and is co-author of two books, Researching Theories of Crime and Deviance and Privileged Places, Race, Residence and the Structure of Opportunity. She's received numerous awards, most recently the W.E.B. Du Bois Award from the Western Society of Criminology for significant contributions to racial and ethnic issues in the field of criminology. In this podcast, we talk about her recent research on California Proposition 47. Prop 47 reduces some minor crimes to misdemeanors and has resulted in significant incarceration savings, but also attracted quite a bit of a political response to her research. The full text of her research is at the episode 9 entry at reducingcrime.com slash podcast. There you can also find a link to the full radio interview mentioned in the pod. You've talked about some of these studies a lot anyway recently. I mean, you, you know. No, I'm going to answer what questions you ask me. But in case there's a technical question, I want my notes here. Because it, there's nothing loses people than a pile of kind of statistics. You know, they're trying to drive to work. And I, pro- like... I won't talk about in-sample placebo tests, I promise. <laughs> that, that sounded painful, like it was some kind of medical thing. In-sample placebo test. Yeah. I had that once, it cleared up with penicillin. <laughs> Charis, what is it with these studies that you do? Do you attract controversy or do you deliberately go out and court it or does it just hunt you down and find you? I want it on the record that I've been researching controversial topics before they became controversial. You make them controversial. <laughs> no, to... I have nothing oh, to on, do with it. Oh, come on, this is absolutely down to you. No, it has absolutely nothing to do with me. It just turns out that the couple areas that I'm doing research in, including criminal justice reform, happens to be highly politicized, highly controversial especially following a certain somebody coming into the presidency, but he shall remain unnamed. (laughs) The the Dark Lord. (laughs) We will not say his name in this interview. So I was really interested in Prop 47 and the research you did around Prop 47. Given the fact that I actually have listeners from outside of California, outside the United States, as simple as possible, help us understand what is Prop 47 and why why do we care about it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually a pretty big deal in California, although outside of California, most people don't know about it. It's one reform in a series of reforms that California has been enacting, mainly to reduce its prison population. So in 2011, we had a major problem with individuals in our state prisons, overpacked, super crowded. Supreme Court stepped in and said, this can't be anymore, all kinds of violations of constitutional rights, you have to reduce the state prison populations. And we started down a path of reform. Prop 47 is one of those reforms, and what it does is it identifies very low-level 
non-violent, non-serious offenders who have committed certain crimes, mainly drug crimes, but also small thefts and other things. Okay, so if it was drug crimes, but they also had a handgun with them, or there was any hint of violence, none of those guys were included right. in this. No, so we're talking about pretty low-level stuff, and basically charges these individuals with misdemeanors rather than felonies. The idea being that they'll serve their time in jail and not be up in state prisons at the tune of $75,000 a year, all of that savings from not incarcerating folks in state prisons as part of Prop 47 is targeted towards prevention efforts in the state. Okay, so they weren't necessarily released. They were just pushed back to the county and said, you deal with them as you see fit for well, the remainder of the sentence? That was actually a prior reform called realignment. So the first stage of reform was realignment, which is realigning sort of non-serious offenders, taking them out of state prisons, putting them locally in the county and saying, here's money, deal with them, right. either through community supervision or jails. As I see fit, yeah. Prop 47 is actually a reclassification criminal justice reform, whereby individuals who have committed very low-level crimes, rather than being charged with felonies, are being charged as misdemeanants. Okay, so I've listened to other interviews that you've done, and I'm starting to get some sense of this. Collectively, a bunch of people who are probably vested in the outcome and some who are not just seem to have collectively lost their shit over this research then? Well, there's been a lot of reforms. Prop 47 is one of them. And I think for many people, the concern is, well, what is this doing to crime, right? right. We're releasing all these offenders. Many of them are just going on community supervision. We are not taking seriously these drug offenders, right? The assumption is that crime's gonna skyrocket. and. That's a fair question. I mean, it's it's important to ask that question. And the, the pressure will, to some degree, then be put on what are the police doing about it? What are the totally. prosecutors doing about it? And right, and what has happened to crime in the state in the aftermath of these criminal justice reforms? And so you did some research to have a look at that question? Yeah, I don't really have a dog in the race on Prop 47 or realignment or any of these other reforms. I mean, in general, I think if we can keep crime down and do the least harm and save the state money, great. But I wasn't necessarily convinced about the answer of what the impact of these reforms would be on crime, but we didn't know. And we can't lock up everybody for absolutely everything for the whole remainder of their life, so we have to find some balanced right. measure in this. Well, right. that's how we got to where we were in 2011 with right. the Supreme Court stepping in, right? The, the good old days that some people will hearken about, you know, I often talk with folks and they go, oh, in the good old days, we actually, you know, made sure criminals were accountable for their crimes. And I said, well, the good old days led us to the Supreme Court stepping in and saying, California's got to change. And the good old days is a variable thing. Should we go back to when we shipped people off to Australia, we hung people for 223 crimes, and everybody died of syphilis age 35, right? Yes. <laughs> that introduction of Prop 47 was what year? That was 2014. Okay, so there is enough time now to see for a year or two afterwards what the, the impact would be. Because arguably the impact of releasing a bunch of people is that it would be instantaneous, right? Well, in this case, the assumption was that crime rates would be high because the individuals that police would normally target and actually put into prison, they're not even bothering with these individuals because it's so useless to classify them as misdemeanors. So it's that they're not even enforcing the drug laws, that individuals are coming right back out of the system and back onto the streets and using drugs and committing all kinds of violent crimes in order to get those drugs. So the assumption is that Prop 47 would definitely cause certainly drug crimes to go up, but especially other crimes as well, violent and property crimes. So the sort of argument is that crime is going to go up because the police won't be doing one aspect to their job simply because it's not tied to what they deem to be an appropriate punishment. 
That's part of it, and the other part is the deterrence argument, right? Which is that if you have weak penalties for individuals engaging in these crimes, theft and drugs, that they're not going to be deterred because there's no threat of a state sentence, a state prison sentence looming over them. Well, and as we've seen by the death penalty, that's completely curtailed all homicide across the United States, right? Of course. It's a wonderful, it's wonderful that it was able to do that. And I'm actually the same as you. I have no dog in the fight. I have no moral position because anybody who knows me knows I'm completely amoral. But I don't have a moral position on the death penalty either. If it worked and it, the application wasn't, you know, there's evidence that it's racist, I you know, could find a way to support it. However, it doesn't. There's no evidence that it has any deterrent capacity and there are all these implementation issues. Mm -hmm. so well, maybe, you know, California, just halted the death penalty, yeah. right? And halted the sentences of those on death row. That's also quite controversial at the moment. Oh, I'm sure you can do a study and kind of attract more and more people. <laughs> Someone to... else can do that study. <laughs> the thing is, is I had been doing research on realignment's impact on crime rates, spent years working with colleagues in the department, Carol Saron and others, assembling the best scholars doing research on prison downsizing and its impact on crime throughout the state. After years, we put out a special issue of the Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Science detailing the findings, which, by the way, showed realignment had very, very modest impacts only on one or two property crimes, that of auto theft mainly. And I was busy actually trying to disseminate those findings, but people were going, well, what about Prop 47 now? And I said, well, wait a minute, you were just asking a few weeks ago about realignment. I'm giving you the results for realignment, but now they're on to Prop 47. See, when people find stuff interesting, you just, just it comes and finds you. Yeah. I was busy trying to share my realignment findings with folks. They're asking about Prop 47. My response was typically find someone who's studying Prop 47. After a couple years of that, turned out nobody was studying Prop 47. Which, if you think about it, is actually incredible. Insane. We bring in this massive potential change to the whole flow of the criminal justice system. And the politicians are like, yep, there you go. There it's done. We've solved our problem. And then nobody's actually been required to look at it and think about what those implications are. And I don't want to speak for people who oppose Prop 47, but you can understand some of their frustrations if they really believe that this thing is hugely harmful. Right. And I mean, a lot of police officers I've spoken with will tell me that they see the same guys over and over. They're not deterred. They're in you know, engaging in small crimes. There's nothing to stop them. There's no deterrent effect. And I'm saying, okay, I understand that. That's what you're experiencing. The question is, what does that mean for crime statewide right. in a systematic your, analysis? How does your individual experience translate to some kind of aggregate thing that tells us? Because we can't drive policy by individual cases. Oh, absolutely. That's the point. But people don't necessarily want to hear the systematic data Right. kind of what the study found and being an academic quote-unquote in the ivory tower doesn't always help with the message. Your data doesn't count when I have feelings. <laughs> I think the point we talked about earlier which is that it's important to draw that discussion in because I think it does contextualize like hearing what police officers are experiencing on the ground mm -hmm. what members of, of communities plagued by crime are experiencing is important. Yes. But, but, that's, but it, it's a great way to define and think about the research questions. Absolutely. 
and it's one piece of it, it's not everything. And you know, the study findings are important. And this is why, so Brad Bartos and I, Brad Bartos is a doctoral student here at UCI, got all of the data that in order to be able to examine the impact of Prop 47 on violent and property crime in the year following its enactment. So that was 2015. And what did you find? The quick answer is no impact whatsoever. So basically it had no impact on violent crime, which is not at all surprising because these are very low level offenders to begin with. When you say that, did violent crime change, but it just wasn't statistically significant? Right. Of course, violent crime changed. And in fact, it went up a little in 2015. Crime did in the state of California. So of course, people were assuming that those upticks in crime Mm -hmm. could be attributed to Prop 47. And I like to remind people before I even did the study, crime is caused by a constellation of factors, right? Simply saying we enacted this and crime went up does not prove that that caused crime to go up, right? right? We have to have a much more sophisticated methodology to do that. We need to have a counterfactual and listeners to this podcast, well, a lot of them are well-versed in evidence-based policing. So we need to find our comparison group. And of course, you haven't got a comparison group that's directly measurable. So what did you do? Well, so we used a really cool method, synthetic control group design that allows you to... It's a scary name, though. (laughs) And it's quasi-experimental, which also throws some people off. It's got all of the benefits of an experimental approach minus random assignment, right? So in theory, the perfect study would take all the states in the United States, randomly assign some of them to have Prop 47 and others not to. And then we see what differences there are. Yeah, we're not going there anytime soon. Not going there anytime soon. So what this approach allows us to do is identify states that looked a lot like California prior to them, prior to the implementation of Prop 47, but states that did not enact Prop 47. And we compare what happened in crime in California after Prop 47 to crime in what we call counterfactual California. And you created counterfactual California by actually merging a few states together, didn't you? So we looked, so you have what's called a donor pool. Donor pool is every state that could be part of that analysis to compare California to. In our case, you wouldn't want a a state that enacted a Prop 47-like policy because that taints it. So what we did, and luckily there was none. So every other state in the United States could potentially be in our donor pool. What we did is we took 44 years of crime data prior to Prop 47 being implemented and found which states mirrored California on a series of crimes that most closely matched. So what did you find? We found that Prop 47 had no causal impact on violent crime whatsoever and may have had a small causal impact on motor vehicle theft and larceny. But when we did some robustness checks of that finding, in other words, we subjected that finding to further scrutiny, those effects kind of went away, meaning we couldn't have strong confidence that Prop 47 causally impacted larceny and motor vehicle theft. Okay, so there was some statistical speak in there, which means we've lost about 20% of the readers, (laughs) 10 of whom are driving to work now and just had a road traffic accident. But the bottom line, if I can try... Sorry, (laughs) send me the bill. (laughs) But what that really means is that we're on the verge of potentially a finding, and this is why people hate academia, but this is the reality of working in a messy world with a lot of uncertainty, is that there isn't a lot of confidence to try and say this absolutely caused problems. 
Right, so you have a finding. You want to subject that finding to a lot of scrutiny, right? So as, run as in, the model this way. As important policy should come under a lot of scrutiny. Right, and we call that robustness checks. Like how robust is this finding? If we were yeah. to change the model specification just a little bit, would we lose that finding? That's yeah. not a robust finding. We really want to bank on robust findings. So it turns out, initially we found this effect of Prop 47 on larceny and motor vehicle theft, but once we subjected it to further testing, it kind of went away, meaning it wasn't a robust finding. Right. The researchers who are listening to this will be nodding to that because they recognize that there are actually many different statistical kind of approaches to get to an answer. You know, I think it confuses a lot of students when they think, well, what is the one technique I must use to get this exactly. answer? And there are lots of different techniques that have their own benefits and their own negatives. And what you did then was look at this with a range of different techniques to see, look, if this result is solid, it's going to hold up across a bunch of different ways of looking right. at it, and that, and you didn't find that. Right. So just to give you one concrete example of a way that we tested that was we pretended that California wasn't the state that enacted Prop 47. We randomly chose other states, pretended that they had enacted Prop 47, and then examined the impact of this fictitious Prop 47 on crime in these other states. Now, in theory, the findings for those other states should be well below California because they didn't enact Prop 47, right? right? So we were able to rank the states and look to see where California fell in that ranking. But one other quick example of that is we changed the donor pool states um, a little bit so that counterfactual California looked slightly different than it did in the previous model to see if changing or fiddling with counterfactual California impacted the finding, and it did. What you've really done then is done a lot of due diligence to try and find different ways to really understand the nature of the problem. Correct. But then you ran into the issue that that didn't gel with people's perception on the ground. And what I think is interesting about this is if you have a range of you know, police officers and prosecutors, we ha you had some quite strenuous objections to the research <laughs> that you did. If it doesn't gel with their personal experience, there's nothing wrong with those personal experiences. But now that raises an interesting question, which is, look, if things aren't actually getting worse as a result of this, why do people have this yeah. negative response to Prop 47 that they feel is experience based? I'm actually less bothered by people who said the findings didn't resonate with them because we did a statewide analysis. And it could be that that masks very important variation locally that police officers are experiencing. Right. So some places could be going up. It could be getting really bad. But Fair it... enough. And, and there's no doubt that that's the case. And we don't know which those are because we just looked at the state as a whole. So for a police officer or someone to say, didn't resonate with my experience is less problematic. What that's I had okay. issues with is, I guess you could call the wholesale rejection of any kind of research to study these sorts of things. So literally, like the research is a non-starter. You know nothing because you're not a police officer. You can say nothing because, you know, you sit up in an ivory tower crunching numbers that have no basis in reality. So the fact that research isn't even a part of the conversation, that was where I had trouble. And you're running into the same problem that proponents within policing of evidence-based policing have. So it's not actually just an issue that you have being in the ivory tower. People who are police officers, um, who've worked the streets for years, who are now trying to advocate for evidence-based policing are running into the same problem because now they're not the right kind of police. Exactly. I understand that analogy well, yes. You have run into an interesting, I'm going to use that term very liberally, an interesting range of people who are vehemently opposed to the research that you've published. 
I saw that the deputies... Oh, Los Angeles Association of Deputy District Attorneys. Yes. Mm -hmm. They didn't seem very enthusiastic. No, I've been in ongoing conversation, if you want to call it that, with LADA about the findings. They're very critical. LADA is the Los Angeles... Association of Deputy District Attorneys, and it's the president that I've mainly been communicating with who issued a statement around the findings of our study, challenging the methodology, challenging a number of issues to which we responded. It's important to point out that LADA and other organizations are spearheading efforts to roll back criminal justice reform in California. So there's been a real effort to get it on the ballot to revoke both Prop 47, realignment. And so I'm kind of not surprised that these are the individuals most upset with the study and its findings. How does it feel having not just your methodology called into question, which is something I think in academia we're kind of used to, right? Right. But to have questions raised about the level of bias, bringing a liberal reform-minded agenda, all that kind of stuff. How does it feel having those questions raised about your research? Well, the good news is, is I feel so confident, and this is why it's really important to make sure all your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed when you do this kind of research, that you know the findings are going to be politicized, that you know that you can, when your head hits the pillow at night, you have done the best possible study, right, with 100% confidence. So I I 100% believe in the findings of this study, and that's very important and very grounding for me, and the methodology. So I feel like there's no competition there. There, There's always limitations with studies, but the overarching findings are as solid as they can be, and I feel good about that. And in fact, the Public Policy Institute of California recently released a report with their findings about Prop 47, which were very close to ours. So, you know, another, another nail in that coffin. I have been called so many different names, going to your second point, from, you know, left-wing, liberal, crazy researcher who's pushing a platform to we're lying and creating false data. The range has been insane. Has has it surprised you? A little bit because it reflects to me this treatment of academic research as just completely baseless. I mean, some of the claims that have been wedged against me involve falsifying data, doing spotty analysis. I mean, these are things that could derail a career. Now, luckily, I don't have to worry about that because they're simply not true. But those kinds of claims undermine researchers' ability to really connect with the public and share the findings in a way that I think is really important to do, I see as my duty to do. Which is rare amongst academics. Yeah, I mean, I think we all want that. It's a lot of work to do that. This is very relevant policy-based research. And the part that makes me laugh, and I I don't want to... um I don't want to unburnish any credentials you have with your uh, social justice warrior crowd, but in talking outside of this, it, you've struck me as being very neutral in terms of how you've approached Prop 47. Oh, absolutely. In terms of just going where the data go, which is where a good scientist should go, My right? first hat is scientist, and the data are going to show what the data are going to show. You don't seem to have a dog in the fight at all. Like I said, at the end of the day, I want policy that's sensible, that is least harmful, that will, you know, do there, the, do no the job. There is no future in this field for you. That's just, there's a pipe dream if ever I heard one. Um, more important than that is my precept, which is that we should be basing policies on empirical research first and foremost, and in, in all areas, right? This is what the research is intended for. So it needs to be good. But at the end of the day, that's what I'm most concerned about is that 
prior to some of these handful of studies on realignment and Prop 47, we were just basically guessing about what impact it was having. And we were making policy decisions around the kind of politics around these sorts of things, rather than simply saying, well, what do the data show on this? And that's why the public deserves to know with their taxpayer money, what the findings are for this study. It's not the end of the story, but it's certainly one piece of the story. And they're getting a lot of the politicization through the media, but they're not necessarily going to be looking at my article in Criminology and Public Policy. Which then speaks to the reason to reach out in various different ways, because you're running into groups that have vested interests, either politically vested interest or just emotionally vested interest. And we talked about, you know, if police officers or prosecutors have an experience that differs from the research. So one of the things that we should be able to tell them is that level of variance, which is no, it may be worse in your area, but it's going to be better in other areas of the state. And if we're going to make statewide policy, exactly. that policy has to be statewide. Exactly. Prop 47 is statewide. It's a statewide. And then you ran into a couple of numbnuts on the radio. <laughs> uh, what are their names? <laughs> John and Ken. Yeah, I've only listened to <laughs> the nuts. I've only listened to like the fifteen minute interview <laughs> with you, but I mean these two guys seem to sound like they have the IQ of a fridge magnet between them. <laughs> Careful, you're approaching John and Ken levels of discussion. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of fascinating to hear. I'll put up on Twitter uh, a link to the uh, to the interview because it's kind of fascinating. But why wait? For the discerning listener at home, here is a heavily edited couple of minutes taken from Sharis's radio interview. A link to the full 15 minutes is available at reducingcrime.com slash podcast. I found the study preposterous. I don't believe that. Because what I've seen now twice in my life here in California is when we put felons away in the 1990s, the crime rate went down right before our eyes. Well, I'm a little surprised And and the police will tell you that, yeah, this is ever since Prop 47 passed. There's like a real world. And then there was the world that you concocted with your survey. Right. That's a common comment that I hear all the time. And maybe it's true. Well, no maybe there's reality, tr- but let me you, back wait, up wait, do you think there's truth to it? No, let me back up. There's no explain. truth to the experience we're all having out in the real world. Of course, there's truth to that experience. But let me explain. First of all, property crime, while it was up in 2015, which we acknowledge in the paper, it was actually down in 2016. And so my the sense that crime is off the charts, that things are horrible, that the world is coming to an end, does not match actually what the data say. Putting in prison low-level offenders and spending $75,000 per year to house them there, that we are now actually... Oh, you have an agenda then, don't you? ...managing our prison populations in a better way. Really? Allowing What's space... It? 60, let me finish, please wait, let wait, me finish there's 60, there's 60,000 homeless people on the street. That's how we manage the situation. Let they're me, out on the street. Quit, quit deflecting what I'm saying. I'm trying to explain what I believe based on the data, which is that now instead of actually housing these individuals in state prison at the tune of taxpayer dollars of $75,000 per year per individual, we are making smarter use of our criminal justice resources in order to address the real crime problem, which I think is, is violent crime. And Prop 47 really is dealing with the lowest level of nonviolent drug and petty theft offenders. You talk and about so deflection? In, in many ways, I'm not surprised. Wait a second. That at the end of the day, Prop 47 didn't impact property crime or violent crime well, because I, these are really just low-level offenders that don't. They're need low-level to be offenders. Using Wait a second. They're low-level offenders until until they until, until they steal your car. 
when and you, that it's not a low-level offense to a person anymore. When you said property crime has gone down, does that include what we now classify as misdemeanor crime? So basically, property crime in 2016 went down. That is for burglary, larceny, and auto theft, many of the crimes that we're talking about under Prop 47. When prisoners are inside four walls, they can't hurt anybody. They can't steal anything. You really don't understand that? Well, that's a demeaning statement. And by the way... Oh, oh, oh wait a second. Hold on. Did I trigger you? No. But I don't, it's not I'm a not demeaning statement. You don't. You, why don't you tell me if you understand what I'm saying? And important issues do you think, of this kind. Do you think in, in such a um, demeaning, dismissive oh, way? Oh, demeaning and dismissive. It looks like we have a snowflake here, don't we now? And most of the law enforcement that we speak with on the air have said it absolutely. It started immediately after Prop 47. So you're in your laboratory. We're out here in the real world. And you're asking us not to trust our eyes well, and our ears like for your and our experiences. To reach out if they want to see a copy of the study, I'm happy to share it. If they want to talk about the study, I'm happy to share it. I'm happy to talk to anybody about the findings of the study. At the end of the day, we voted. Why don't for you? Why don't you? Why don't you? The well, day, they voted, voted for it under for false Prop pretenses. To be implemented it's, by a wide margin, it's, and it's, basically, American voters cl- deserve to learn clearly, what the data say. You're not a. Not you're not. You're not an unbiased researcher. You're an, you're an advocate show. with a political agenda. It is not shocking that you came to your conclusion. After hearing you talk for 15 minutes, it's clear you went in looking for this result, and you got it because it's what you believe in. There is absolutely no response to that because it's so outlandish and ridiculous. There's nothing for me to say in response to that. Fine. Then we're done. Thanks for coming on. Wow. It got to the fake outrage and manufactured anger shouty stage really, really quickly. What was that experience being an academic going into that? Yeah, I have to say I've never quite experienced that level of emotion talking about research, right? Which is what I did for about a second and then it devolved. It it normally has the reverse effect on most people, right? You know, I knew when I got invited to go on the radio show, John and Ken, that it wasn't going to be a walk in the park. I knew where they were coming from. I knew their viewpoints on this. I knew they were involved in trying to roll back criminal justice reform. And for the audience, can you explain for a moment a a little bit about these guys' radio? So John and Ken is what I would call political infotainment. It's a little bit of education on various issues, some political stuff, but mainly Gosh, what's what's the way to put it? Mainly like shouting mad. I mean, I, their their Twitter handle says it all. It's like kicking ass and taking names five days a week or something like that. When you They're live not in afraid a, to share their opinions. When you live in a soundproof box, it's easy to be tough, right? Yeah. So I knew that. I also knew though that they have 1.2 million listeners, many in California who are probably not quite like them and may want to actually know a bit more about the issues that are being raised on the show. So for me, it was put your ego aside, Charis. Get beat up a little bit. You know you will. But share your research findings. And this is a little bit why I wanted to come and talk to you, because this is the part I find fascinating, is because not enough academics, and this is me having a dig at the academics listening, uh, will actually go and try and reach out to the audience that they want to change their minds. It's just too easy to write. Well, there's no incentive. I mean, it's really, you know, in this case with the 
John and Ken show, I was literally shaking when I got done with that interview because I've never been screamed at and talked over. My eight-year-old listened to it and he said, Mommy, why won't they let you talk? <laughs> and then at one point in the show, they called me a snowflake because I was pushing back on a comment that they were making. And I think I said something like, you know, that's a rude statement. Oh, we've got a snowflake in the studio. Well, they, they accused you of being triggered, which I thought was hilarious because they're the ones doing the shouty whaley crying. But you know, in the bigger picture then, a young scholar listening to that will think, I am never going to do any kind of media outreach or anything like that ever again. And that's actually the worst. We need to be doing more of it, right? Because the research is kind of interesting. And I think there's something in here for criminal justice practitioners and for policing scholars. Instead of just driving public policy by opinion and anecdote, we can actually test really big impactful things like Prop 47 with research in a variety of different ways. It doesn't have to be randomized trials. We can do other types of work. That's why your work, I think, has been really interesting. But wow, your experiences are enough to make us want, you know, some people to want to bury it and never let it see the light of day. But, but there's a silver lining to that cloud. So you're, you'll hear how painful it is. But what you don't hear or what you won't know is that following that interview, I got at least three dozen emails from listeners who took the time to look me up, find my webpage, send me an email and tell me, can you please send me that paper? I want to learn more. The ratio is not in your favor with that kind of listeners, but I appreciate the sentiment. But those are the ones that actually took the time to look me up and ask for. Right. Okay, right. How many others maybe found it interesting, but didn't take the time to look me up and ask the paper? So the question is, right, it, there is um, a positive side to that. You are reaching people. You may not be reaching as many people as you want, but you're reaching nobody if you don't do it. Right. And I think it speaks to the value of universities who are particularly poor at that, of doing a little bit more training for their faculty in terms of handling different types of media. Couldn't agree more. I mean, I have no idea what I'm doing, to be honest. I, I My PhD is in you know sociology. My area is criminology. I've got the methods down. I've got the theory down. I have had zero training in communicating my findings beyond a journal. I did a live interview for an hour on radio, on National Public Radio, uh, radio in Philadelphia, and was introduced as Welcome Jerry Ratcliffe. And, you know, also discussing this contentious policing topic is legendary civil rights lawyer David Rodofsky's. Welcome back for your fifth time on the show, isn't it? And he, for the first half an hour, he wiped the floor with me. I had zero practice, zero training, but it was a salutary lesson in watching a really great guy in Philadelphia do just a stellar job, well-practiced. And I think there's value in universities training their academics to do a, a better job so that, you know, I, mean, it's like I, I don't anything. get the floor wiped with me again. Right. No, I mean, it's like anything. You have to get socialized into it. You have to learn the tricks of the trade. I've stepped in it many times in interviews, speaking with newspaper reporters. I mean, you name it, I've done it. The point is, is at the end of the day, it's about the research. It's not about how I look or sound or what faux pas I made, right? At the end of the day, as long as the research is getting out there, that's kind of the North Star. That's the guiding star that keeps me on track around this stuff. So the ego stays nice and down. And for the academics, that's, you know, if you're working in the criminal justice field and the policy field, that's surely got to be what it's about. So, I mean, there are, you know, for any academics listening, get some media training, practice, dive into this stuff and do it. Because if you want to change the public debate, you will not do it by publishing obscure journal articles. Or waiting for someone else to translate your research. The American Society of Criminology and the Academy of Criminal Justice Sciences both work with what's called the Crime and Justice Research Alliance. I'm a member of the board. 
And the goal really is to be like a link between the public and policymakers and the scholarship of ASC and ACJS. And they offer lots of trainings available to members of ASC and ACJS. They offer lots of opportunities to bridge the connection. So we do need to take advantage of those opportunities that exist. To come back to the Prop 47 thing, why do you think there were no significant changes in crime associated with Prop 47 when a lot of people had these sort of inherent assumptions? I mean, because I think at the end of the day, we're dealing with a certain class of offender, very low level offenders who are engaging in relatively minor crimes. So just to give you an example, Prop 47 requires misdemeanor sentencing for several crimes. For example, shoplifting, where the value value of the stolen property does not exceed $950. Prior to that, the value of the property to not exceed was like $750. So we moved it up a little bit. The changes in the legislation will be minimal, much more down to situational crime prevention. Yeah. Situational crime prevention in circumstances like that, just in making stores a little bit safer, harder to steal from, or if anybody's listening in Britain, having more police around who can act as some kind of deterrence because policing has been struggling in the UK with uh, significant losses of numbers. That kind of stuff is gonna have far more of an impact than the availability of potentially low level, simply opportunistic offenders. Right, I, I completely agree. Now, police officers have told me that literally offenders are sitting there with calculators going up right to the amount and then making sure they're not going over I haven't seen any data to support that assertion. I'm thinking there's a few Walt Disney's out there. Really? You know, it's, it's a nice a story. I've heard. I've heard that around at various, you know, city council meetings and others. That's a nice story, but it sounds like a fairy tale. Have you got some Walt Disney there? But okay, but, yeah. that's a possibility. Yeah, but I mean, the reality... Somebody will tweet at me to tell me they've had it happen, I'm sure. They're bound to. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you engage with that Twitter person. I That's not my area. But I get feisty on Twitter get sometimes. Get feisty on Twitter. You can do it on my behalf. Thank you. But we're really tinkering here in ways that I don't think is going to have a huge impact. Now, to be fair and to be transparent, we, we measured part one, the impact on part one. Right. So murder, rape, robbery, assault, burglary, larceny, and auto theft. What we didn't examine is the impact of Prop 40 on drug crimes, okay, because we didn't use part, we didn't have part two data, or things like homelessness, which has become an increasing right. problem here. So, you know, that awaits to be studied. And some of the interviews that you've had have raised those as definite yes. issues. But again, let's go back to the evidence for that mm -hmm. rather than simply right. making blanket assumptions. And on the basis of that, that becomes the foundation for our public policy. Well, that's sort of what I tell Lada, which is, I understand that you're critiquing the study improperly, in my opinion, but okay. Where's the alternative studies that prove otherwise? I mean, there has been no other study. Lada itself has not done a study. And the only other study that's come out since my back and forth with Lada has been a study by PPIC, which actually reinforces the findings of my study. So again, I'm awaiting that study that shows that I'm wrong, Lada's correct. Charis, this has been fabulous. It's yeah. been very interesting. Uh, I'm just intrigued by this notion of doing research in the public policy area and then just getting this incredible range of reactions. Well, you haven't gotten that with your research? No, nobody pays any attention to what <laughs> I have to say. I can't imagine that you haven't gotten it on both ends. Being sort of in this interesting space that you are, I mean, how do the police feel about the work that you're doing? Nobody pays any attention. That's how I like it. <laughs>
Okay, because I've teased everybody uh-huh. with the interview that you did. Anybody follows on Twitter, I'll put a link to the YouTube with the interview, uh, and I'll also put a link to it on the podcast page on reducingcrime.com. I can't remember the names again. Shouty McShouty, and what were these guys' names? <laughs> John and Ken. Okay. But can you do me a favor and put a link to the paper too? Absolutely. Okay, that needs to stand side by side with that interview. Sharon Scruppin, that was great. Thanks very much. Thank you. You've been listening to episode 9 of Reducing Crime, recorded in California in March 2019. You can find more podcasts like this at reducingcrime.com or the usual podcasty places. New podcasts are announced on Twitter at underscore reducing crime. Don't forget the underscore. Be safe and best of luck. <laughs>